Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... I say to young women all the time, say yes first and work out how to do it later. And remember this, that if someone thinks you can do it, you probably can. Serial entrepreneur and feminist advocate Wendy McCarthy credits her mother pushing her to have an education with opening her life to all the possibilities. In part two, Wendy reveals why it's crucial to bring other women into the tent to succeed, how she jumped at the chance to co-pilot the successful political campaign of independent Dr. Karen Phelps to win the Wentworth by-election, a former Blue Ribbon Liberal stronghold, and how she thrives on the game of change, as she calls it. Here's part two of my interview with Wendy McCarthy. Can we just go back a bit to how you began after being raised in the country and attending Forbes High School, but you managed to get a scholarship to study teaching. So again, education at that earlier stage in your life was key. Was that really a door opening for you? Oh, yes, because no one in my family had been to university. I mean, we couldn't have had a discussion about a university. And I don't want that to sound negative in any family. It's just that hadn't happened. And experience is everything in these things because when you've had that experience, you open a door to your children or your, the rest of your extended family to have that opportunity. And, you know, education's precious. I mean, once you've got it, no one can take it away. That's one of the things that's so important that – It's just for you to use wisely. And I would not have been able to go to university uh, without the scholarship. And if it hadn't been for teachers suggesting that I did that, um, which is, you know, I say thank you for teachers every single day, I wouldn't have gone. I'd have been working in the chemist shop and my mother had a driving ambition that I would do well. I don't think she could have said how I would do well. But she knew but she wanted if she you kept to do well in education. She knew something would work. Yes, because your folks were farmers. So where do you think this entrepreneurial kind of streak in your drive came from? Well, my experience is lots of farmers are very entrepreneurial, and my husband ended up. You know, my mother wanted me to marry a grazier. I think the irony of it all is I married an economist, chartered accountant, and. After 20 years of marriage, he became a grazier and a farmer <laughs> and, and she got a wish. <laughs> but I think, I mean, he was very entrepreneurial and I think that I th- when you farm in an environment where you can't change the weather, um, you can't do lots of things, you have to be entrepreneurial and opportunistic. And I think I saw that in my family without even knowing that's what it was. But it was that sense of just, you know, get up and have a go. And the other thing is that to find your own voice and be responsible for your sort of your own actions. It's interesting in your, you write in this memoir, Don't Be So Polite Girls, which is a great title, that part of your ethos has been to take the leap. Accept an opportunity, even if you don't kind of realise it's an opportunity, even if it terrifies you at the time, which is often said, women will hang back, oh, no, I'm not qualified to do that, so I couldn't possibly accept. Go and grab it and then work out later 
um, how to do it, but decide to take the leap and back yourself. Is that what you essentially did in all these organisations? I did, and I think that I, I say to young women all the time, say yes first and work out how to do it later and remember this, that if someone thinks you can do it, you probably can. People don't just walk around saying, oh, would you like to do this, Wendy, or that? that it's a considered choice. You're a considered choice, so you have to accept that as a compliment and I mean, I, it took me a long while to learn that because I used to think, oh my God, you know, I have to do a PhD on this or what? How could I do this? And then you think there are people there who do, they don't, they don't ask you so you'll fail. They ask you so you'll be part of their team and you'll succeed. And you have to pass on that generosity and opportunity and kindness to other women because I would hate to be thought of as a woman who, as a queen bee, just had the drones around her. And pulled the ladder up after you. And pulled the ladder up, yes. I want everyone to have as much fun as I have. So you've never been like that, have you? No. Um, And, I mean, you have affected change and you've instilled an entrepreneurial spirit most often at these organisations. Was that on purpose, Mm -hmm. do you think? I think as a a teacher it's my natural habitat to find – to work with other young people, as they were, um, to find their own way in the world. So they shouldn't need me after a while. I should be extra numerate, really. <laughs> and, but it, it's certainly a d- deliberate thing later on in life. I think if I'm, la- if I'm you know, on a board and I'm the only woman, I should be replaced by two, not because I'm so smart, but they should think it'll be much easier to bring another woman in and then another woman so it begins to look like the norm. And I feel very strongly about that. And I certainly, when I'm the chairing an organisation, I'll push a minister or someone else to a company to say, no, no, we've got to have more women. It's, it's all the clubs of Australia and the world, you know, business, wealth creation, government and legislation, and spirituality, stroke, religion, faith. They all need to look like the communities they serve. And I don't know of any community in the world that isn't at somewhere around 50-50. We happen to be 51 a bit percent women in Australia. Well, it sure doesn't look like that if you dropped in from Mars and you walked in half the boardrooms in Sydney. You did back yourself a few times in business. You, you mentioned you started a couple of businesses, but then you started McCarthy Mentoring, a mentoring practice. Did you know that would be a successful startup? Because, I mean, you weren't 20 when you started that up, so you'd had an enormous amount of experience. You'd had a lot of contacts in in the business world and politics by then. Did you think of it as a startup? Yes, I did think of it as a startup because it started really in Citigroup and I was working with the CEO. In Citigroup, yeah, yeah, so within another company, yeah. And I was acting as an advisor and I was there because I'd written something in the bulletin about um, where are the women in corporate Australia. And he'd rung me and he was Irish-American and he said, I just don't get Australia. He said, you know, I've just come from Taiwan and you know, 13 people reporting to me and half of them were women and there were five or six nationalities. He said, what is it with Australia? He said, how about you come in and do a cultural map or tell me what's wrong, what's going on in our organisation? And I did. And at the end of it, he said, I'm going to put a couple of women in the executive team. And they said, oh, you know, he said, I'll give them a, I'll give them a mentor or a coach or something. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. Anyway, I just left it at that. And then he came back later and he said, they don't like it. 
They don't like those men. Those men just say to them, I, you know, they download on them and he said, I think they need the something. mentors? Yes, yes. And he, well, <laughs> be like, out very well. I mean, you know, they want to tell you their life story and they've never, <laughs> no one's ever listened to them before in that way. Talk about themselves, yeah. not the mentee. <laughs> it would be early mansplaining. <laughs> anyway, one. so I said, well, what do you think is the definitive thing? He said, well, what they told me is they just want women whose shoes they can walk in. And, you know, Atticus Finch. Really? That's that's how I set up the mentoring practice. And once you can see the shoes that go before you, you know that there's a message that's in the ether about how to find your own voice and trust your voice. Well, you can't be what you can't see. Correct. It's a great Correct. little saying. What do you think was the key to making McCarthy mentoring work? I think the contacts that I had and some of those older men who are actually men of my age trusting me with their daughters and their companies in, in a and their kind employees. of and, – And, you know, and so – and then Sophie, my daughter, came to work with me and it was part of a portfolio for me. It was one stream of activity. And she could see with me that this is something she could make a business out of. And so she – we were going to sell it, tried to sell it, and, and then she said, you know, I think I could do this, Mum. So she bought it. Um, it belonged to McCarthy Management, our family company, the name. And so she bought the name and she went on with the business and now it's a flourishing business over 20 years. So there's always – It is fantastic. And there's always a need for this kind of a business. And, you know, there – and although it's female-dominated at one level, there are plenty of men who are learning to do business differently by this kind of contact. And since the book's out, one of the most interesting things is how many men who have been part of that mentoring process with me over 20-odd years or over 40 years probably have written to say how much they enjoyed it. And that's a really lovely thing. How has your view of leadership evolved or changed or, or view of your own leadership changed, say, in your entrepreneurial journey? I think... I think it hasn't shifted a great deal. I don't think I had a conscious construct when I was younger, but certainly in the early days of women's movement, the idea was that the system should have flat leadership, no hierarchy. And I came from, you know, teachers were hierarchical because that's the way the education department was done. And boards but, of companies are hierarchical. Yes, and but that, the companies weren't my experience at the time. Mm. But I could see, but in the classroom... It's flat leadership because you might have 30 kids in the class, 30 girls, you know, 16-year-old girls in the classroom. There's no room for hierarchies there. They're, what they have to do is they're learning at one level. They're, they expect their teacher to be a leader, an intellectual and emotional leader and support person. And so that was part of my subconscious view about leadership. But then I did like a school principal who had what I'd call a tough set of rules, boundaries, and then a really flexible system inside. And I suppose that's always the system that I've liked. Someone has to set the boundaries. And then as a chair or a deputy chair, how do you view your own leadership? Are you collegiate? Do you listen to everyone and then say, no, this is what we're doing? I think I'm very collegiate and I listen to what we're doing, and but but I put the uh, 
I put the aim and objective out first. I say we, we need to get to, to, to do this. One of my most recent difficult boards was Headspace. And in that board, there were three psychiatrists, which is a lot of psychiatrists have on a board um, of nine. And I think they didn't fit easily into a corporate structure. But so if we knew what we were, where we were trying to get to, mostly you could talk and argue it out in between time. And I think they gave us insights into the issues that they saw with young people. And I think the rest of us who I'd say were sort of specialist generalists, and really they're the people who should be on boards. You don't, you, you're a governor, you're not the manager. If you're the governor of the ideas, you'd rely on your management to give you the detail. Yeah. And as long as you've got a good nose, you know, you can tell when they're telling the truth. Nose yeah. in, fingers out. <laughs> exactly. Nose in, fingers out. Yeah. How do you master risk-taking? Because you no doubt have, you know, you do have an appetite for risk. You jump into things and you you say, let's have a go, let's do it, and obviously they've mostly worked. But how do you master that not taking off too much risk, not um, particularly in not-for-profit organisations that generally run on the smell of an oily rag? Do you think you've mastered that? I've seen some companies that run on the smell of an oily rag too, if I'm honest. Um, yes, it's a measured risk, but I think what's the worst that could happen? And once I've worked that out with it, whoever, I then sort of pull back and say, well, then how much space is there to take a risk and how reliant we could be on it? And I think it changes over the time. I mean, there was a time in the ABC where you could take a lot of risk, like the orchestras could have no, when they left the ABC, they could have no money and they would hold the state governments to ransom, really, while they'd say, well, we won't play another sound for you if you don't produce the money or if you don't give us a town hall or something else. And I kind of looked in rather, you know, quite a bit of admiration, really, how they could just stick it to their governments when they went out from the ABC auspicing. And I think about the worst that could happen and then I think about what is the best thing that could happen that we're trying to achieve and then somewhere in there is a ris your risk indicator. But you can't open the doors and trade if you're going to be insolvent. That is the of worst course. thing. So somewhere in there you have to have a number as well as a behaviour. Yeah, so and, a boundary a of some yeah, sort of yeah. a limit. You have often worked behind the scenes, as we've been talking, you've worked effectively to push boundaries and ways of thinking mm. and build community consensus to get stuff done. What have you learnt about yourself as a leader, say, in these last 10, 15, even 20 years of, of running and growing your portfolio of jobs and organisations? Um, I love the game. I love the game of change. I love persuading people to do things that I think are in, you know, they're never in necessarily in my interest, but I'll have a personal interest in it because that's one of the things that motivate you. Um, but I also, you know, I'm still a young girl in, at one part of me and I'm still a teacher at another part of me that wants it to be a fair world and a just world and for all of its citizens. And I feel right, right now I think the citizens of Australia that are the most at risk 
are the under fives. I think they've suffered severely and the evidence is really clear during lockup. When they couldn't get, you know, there was a brief moment when the childcare experiences were available, free, and those children flourished. But we, we are already seeing that some children are in two years of lockup have gone from being three with no experience and they're now nearly six. And we know from the research around the world that a child who has no preschool educational experience really catches up in life. And that is a really t shocking thing for us to do. As the elders of a generation, your job is to support those coming along behind you. You've had your chance and you're your, your challenge now is how you put your arms around the next generations and get them to identify their opportunities and modify their risks. I mean, as older women, we're at risk, but just putting that bit aside of our lives, I worry deeply about an a group of a generation of children who has not had exposure to early learning and the independence comes. And a preschool teacher was saying to me a few weeks ago that she just got a six-year-old in the classroom who'd never, um, the first year at school, who, who had never had that experience. And it took, it is taking a lot of time to settle those children down. And as the first COVID man, you know, we, we can't pretend COVID's over. Suddenly the school closes down again. And these and school is such a stabilizing thing, you know. I remember being in places after tsunamis and you know major experiences and earthquakes. And if you can just get the school, it's the it's the it's really the heart and soul of dreams and confidence and learning in the community, and if you can just get it functioning again, the world seems like a kind of a normal place for kids. But without school, there's no normal place for them. And I'm, I worry about that. It's such a great insight. In 2018, you took on another role building the political campaign that did successfully see Dr. Karen Phelps elected as the independent member for Wentworth in a by-election after Malcolm Turnbull departed that seat. Why did you take on that challenge? It's a funny combination, really. It's sort of weird. Um, when I moved to the eastern suburbs after many years living in Sydney's North Shore, I went to, um, I decided it was time I changed doctors. So I, I knew, I'd known Karen for some years ago, and I said, I, can I join your practice? And she said, yeah, okay. And after my husband died, my Greek friend said to me, just get under the doona for a year. That's what you'd do if you were in Greece. You know, it's the best way to get over it. Just, you know, pull your head in under the doona. And I was, 53 years is a very long time to be in love with someone and to have a good marriage. And I was really gutted. And... I could, I just could go through the motions, but I wasn't thriving. I wasn't, you know, failing, but I wasn't thriving. And I'm walking down the street and I ran into Karen. She said, you know, come and have coffee. She said, you know, but a lot of people think I should run. What do you think if I run it? And I thought, that is the most amazing idea. I'll chair it. Come on, let's go. And that got me out from the doona, back into the community, talking to everyone, and it it just gave me a reason to change the world again. 
And so you didn't hesitate. I didn't hesitate. You didn't hesitate. see perhaps no, the dangers no, no. Of, a, of an independent taking on a no. thoroughly blue ribbon liberal no. seat. Thought right from the beginning, I thought it was an inspired idea. I said, well, that's it, we'll do it. And we did. And although she lost the next one, she's one of the few people who went into parliament who can actually say she got done what she said she would get done. Can you just remind people what that was? To get the children out of Manus, off Manus yeah. Island. And she, she campaigned very heavily on the children in detention. That's right. Refugee children. She got them out under the Medivac Bill. Under the Medivac Bill. And they gave, and then they, of course, out of spite, changed the rules sometime later. And I'm supporting Allegra right now in the same electorate for this election. How did you just give us some key points about how you successfully built that campaign? I mean, of course, there's Karen's own um, energy and uh, profile and all that sort of thing, but how did you come about it? How did you attack it? First of all, by finding people who I knew in New South Wales who'd run successful campaigns before. So Anne-Marie Nicholson, who was on, and Peter MacDonald, who they were independent members of, and um, and. Peter's case in state parliament, in Anne Maria's case in council, they'd run impressive campaigns. Um, I I knew a lot of people in the electorate, and even though I'm not in it because you know it got divided down the middle of the street, and I'm in the Sydney electorate, but I knew a lot of people, and I knew I knew how things worked. So you know the sort of politics in the pub for stuff, and yeah. and and so you made it a, a conscious effort to be a community-based campaign. You absolutely, had to build community it, support from the ground. We went up. for com- community support, and then I found key people in legal practices and so on who'd have her in there to talk to lunch and and so on. So there were a lot of things behind the scenes that you didn't see, and I pretty well helped do most of the fundraising. But, I mean, in terms of the money that's being spent now by independents, I mean, it was chicken feed. So it was was an army of truly engaged volunteers and it was just like women's electoral lobby. You sign up two people and they sign up two and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, with telephones, we had a telephone tree in women's electoral lobby. And, and what's a telephone tree? Oh, Even a telephone tree is a wonderful thing. So you have the landline and you get a one phone landline, call, one yeah. landline in the house, and you get a call to say that there's going to be a demo somewhere. Can you get there? And your job on the tree, and it was drawn as a tree, so you had three branches and you had to ring three people and they had to ring three people and they had to ring right, three people. Right, All bit, on the one phone. A bit like a Ponzi, really. Yeah. <laughs> Will what you've built over the years ever be enough, do you think, or or do you want to keep building? Um, well, I'm not getting back under the doona for the moment. That's uh, very good to hear. <laughs> I'm really loving being out talking to people about my book, Don't Be Too Polite Girls, because, and I'm running into people I've worked with on campaigns and so on, some I haven't seen for 20 years, bobbing up in Bega and Bermagui and Cabago and places that I'm going. And I'm not going to be, um, I'm going to be an engaged citizen until the day I die. I know that. Yeah. You really are the embodiment, I guess, or one of the embodiments of having it all. You by your own account, a loving marriage and family life, three children, a very successful, engaged working life, building movements, helping change perceptions, chairing boards and deputy chairing. Can that work for everyone? 
Well, that's not everyone's definition of a good life, but it, it's it's my definition of a good life now, and you know, and I have built it, and I'm a consciously I've, I've built it as well as romantically and instinctively. But I think if people evolve, um, I, you know, relationships are important to everyone, whatever your relationship is. Um, and I think, you know, that, you know, that, that you just go back to the old hierarchy of needs, really. Um, you, you need a home, you need a relationship. And I think that's the simple part of people's lives. But also work is profoundly important. When you meet people, they still say, what do you do and where do you come from and who's your mob? You know, that's, and, and I think that's really important to, to remember. So you can't have it. You can have a lot of things in your life, but you can't have everything at once. And it's better to measure it out and think about it. So, you know, I don't have a husband anymore. Well, I do have a husband, I think, in, in still in my head. Mm. But I don't have one, a man like my husband, to replace him, and I have no desire to do that. So it's a different time in life and there'll be different ways of expressing myself and friendship. And there are gaps, you know. It is lonely to be without a partner after having one joined at the hip for such a long time. And I think that I, one of the things that I'm really concerned about now is that many of women in my age group don't have the benefits that I have of having a relationship and a partnership for such a long time. And the I gave a speech 20 years ago at superannuation winning saying the face of poverty in Australia is a woman without superannuation living in poverty. And uh, these blokes came along and started shouting at me and saying, how dare I say that and ruin their conference, really. And I said, that's what it be, and that's exactly what it is. So there is there are very many women victims of life who are without what I have. So there is a sense of reciprocity that those of us who have it need to start giving back in ways that will work for all of us. A few quick questions that I'm asking most of my guests, and it doesn't have to be long answers. What are you obsessed about at the moment, be it a book, a film, a grandchild, a cause? I'm obsessed about the government changing because I think in democracy government should change every 10 years. What's the toughest thing you faced in your entrepreneurial journey? I think one of the toughest things was when I stood with a group of three directors and the ABC and said no to uh, a board issue that really damaged the board, but it was a matter of principle about how Four Corners covered a story. And it got to the board level, and I think it it made me understand how important a national broadcaster is about telling the stories, about being Australian and how you can be Australian. And I look at the current thing in um, that's happening in Asia, and I think about the Solomon Islands where I've been quite a few times, and if we can't, they can't be part of our family in this region, we've got the story wrong because they were, and I worry about that sense of being Australian 
and how we how we keep defining it. What's one of the biggest lessons you've learned in this entrepreneurial journey? Hmm, that's a good question. I think if you believe in something and you can find some colleagues to who share that belief, you should have a go at changing things. What would you say to someone perhaps younger who says, I have an idea, I want to pursue it, how do I do it, should I do it? What would you say? I'd say do your homework and see who else is doing it, see if they want to talk to you. Um, and if not, read something. I mean, with the mentoring thing, I ended up reading books about, you know, uh, um, mentor in Greek, in Greek and uh, the mentor who was asked to look after the uh, um, Odyssey. Um, I think doing your homework is important, but I didn't do a lot of market research with anything that I did. I just had a view that it was possible and I looked at the risks of what I could lose and what I could gain. And at the very least, even if it didn't work, I would gain the experience of knowing what it was, was to lose. As you, it, it was a net win. Wendy McCarthy, feminist activist, board director, entrepreneur, founder of many organisations and driver of community consensus on a lot of issues. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It Thou Calm. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.